In today's programme, we focus on the contemporary Hungarian composer George Ligeti. Later on, you'll be able to hear a feature on a recent education project in which the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra worked with the contemporary music ensemble of the National Youth Orchestras of Scotland on Ligeti's Chamber Concerto. But first, to Glasgow, to discover the composer's violin concerto. That's the end of the second movement of George Ligeti's Violin Concerto. Actually, before I go any further, as so many people have asked me before this program began, is it Ligeti or Ligeti? So I think I'd better put one thing absolutely straight. In Hungarian, the accent always falls emphatically on the first syllable of the word, so it's Ligeti. In fact, those of you who know any Hungarian music, say, for instance, of Bartók or Kodai, you've probably heard music that goes da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. That kind of rhythm is very characteristic, just as it's characteristic of the language. Folk music and language often have a close connection to each other. Well, Ligeti wrote his violin concerto in 1990 to 92, towards the end of his life. You probably guessed from listening to that that it was 20th century music. I think it does give itself away that, particularly if, if you know the music of Bartók. There are certain similarities to Bartok's music there, perhaps that uh, Hungarian Balkan folk element in the contours of the violin line. But this piece is absolutely an amazing collection of styles and ideas. You could call it a kind of cornucopia of effects and techniques, a wild collage of atmospheres and colors. In fact, at times, it's almost like a kind of hallucinogenic carnival, which would actually be a rather good way of describing other works of Ligeti as well, particularly his opera Le Grand Macabre, which he wrote in the 1970s. But alongside that music, which is relatively lyrical and calm, you get utterly phantasmagoric things like this.
just a sample of the beginning of the third movement of the violin concerto. Well, Ligeti was born in that part of Hungary, which is now Transylvania, which is rather nice given the rather weird, dark magic of some of his music. In fact, it wouldn't be a surprise to meet Dracula on the set of his opera, Le Grand Macabre. One thing that it is important to stress if you're approaching this music for the first time is that Ligeti really does have a very keen sense of humor. So if you hear anything in this piece that makes you feel like laughing, relax, you're probably meant to. But for sheer weirdness, I mean, that has a kind of ghostly, filigree, strange quality to it. But what about this? This, I think, is about as weird as it gets. Yes, I think that counts in the rich and strange bracket, doesn't it? What we've got are not just the flute and the piccolo here, but four ocarinas and two swanny whistles. Uh, the pitch could be described as approximate. I think that would be a good way of putting it. And believe it or not, though, what those instruments are playing there at that point is a version of that Hungarian folk tune that we heard just a moment or two on the solo violin. At the same time, something else very strange is going on. You notice the way those pizzicato chords are kind of bouncing about within the string section. Plonk, 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 kind of antiphonal effect. That's a device which, as Ligeti proclaims in the title of this movement, he's taken from medieval music. It's called hocketing. That's when notes seem to bounce between two singers or two players backwards and forwards. So what a collage that is. A Hungarian folk tune played by ocarinas and swanny whistles with an accompaniment which is atonal but based on a medieval motet practice. I told you it was rich and strange. But this is all part of a kind of larger strategy. You could say it's a unifying idea, and it's, a, it's an idea that takes root right at the beginning of the concerto in the first of its five movements. Well, you've probably seen we've got a somewhat reduced orchestra today with our conductor, Salt Nodge. We've only got six woodwind, four brass, timpani and two percussion, and 11 strings. That's just 24 musicians in all, plus the soloist, Ernst Kovacic. Yet Ligeti manages to make it sound all the more extravagantly colorful and bizarrely voluptuous than many a score for orchestras of 80 or 90 instruments or above. But the composition of the strings is particularly interesting. What we've got is a basic string orchestra of four violins, two violas, two cellos, and a double bass. But along with them are another violin and another viola tuned slightly differently. Well, today, we're completely conditioned to accept something that's only really been in existence in Western music for about two, three hundred years, something called equal temperament. Let's take a scale of G major, the real basis of Western tonal music. Every tone or semitone of this scale is equal to every other tone or semitone.
That's the scale to which keyboard instruments in particular have been tuned since Bach's day, and they were the basis of his great keyboard work, the well-tempered clavier, which was to show just what you could do when you had an instrument tuned absolutely symmetrically like that. But there are other scales, too, in music from all around the world and in folk music, even in Europe as well. In the ancient Greek worlds, for instance, there were also tunings based on different kind of relationships between notes, tunings based on what they call the natural harmonics. Just play a note of G for me, Ernst. You can hear the basic note there, but in a kind of very, very quiet, subtle halo around that note, there are other notes. They make a kind of aura that give that note its color. And those are what they call the natural harmonics or overtones of that note. If Ernst just runs his finger over the string, you can hear these natural harmonics, ghostly tones that derive from that basic G. It's a lovely sound, isn't it? The kind of sound you might expect to hear if you've ever heard an Aeolian harp, one of those harps that's just blown by the wind. But some of those notes, if you listen to them quite carefully, don't sound quite in tune if what you're used to is that standard scale of G major that Ernst played a moment or two ago. And Ligeti really exploits this in his violin concerto. He plays around with these clashes of pitch, which are created if you use natural harmonics as well as that basic scale. So these two extra stringed instruments, the viola and the violin, are tuned to a different set of harmonics. So what Ligeti does is he takes the basic harmonics on the double basses G string up to the out-of-tune harmonic, the seventh harmonic, if you listen to this. Notice the double bass's top note, the note he played, sounded ever so slightly flat if what you're used to is normal piano tuning. So that the violin is slightly flatter than it would be if you were tuned to the rest of the, the pitches of the strings. And he does the same thing with the extra viola as well. He asks the viola to base his tuning on the C sharp on the double bass's A string. So those two string soloists are in tune with the natural harmonics as they emerge on the double bass, but they're not quite in tune in terms of that equal temperament scale of G major that we heard just a moment or two ago. And Ligeti exploits this clash right from the start. First of all, he has the soloist enter with one of the most basic sounds a violin can make, just a kind of alternation between the A and the D strings. Gradually, the soloist spreads out, so he takes in more and more of the strings. Then, one by one, all the orchestral strings enter, including the two strings that are tuned slightly differently. And you'll hear just the occasional clash or jar in the tuning. It's not bad playing, it's the way it's meant to be. As Ligeti says in the footnote at the bottom of the score, he wants to create an effect here of, as he puts it, fragility and danger.
doesn't end just like that. Actually, this is the hardest piece I think I've ever chosen extracts from. It's extraordinary how ideas blend into one another, and to find a place to stop is actually rather difficult. Did you notice the way that the marimba and the xylophone picked out and added to the top notes that the violinist was playing there? First of all, it just sounded like little dots of color, plonk, plonk, plonk. But then gradually, as they get closer together, they begin to sound like a kind of jerky dance rhythm, a bit like the rhythms of a puppet being jerked about by a kind of crazed puppet master, this strange dance going on. Well, Ligeti really seizes on that idea now in the next section. He has the woodwind and strings play what's called a multiple dance rhythm. It's an invention of Bartok, but Ligeti takes it even further. It, on the page, it looks unbelievably complicated. Instead of just asking for 3-4 or 2-4, Ligeti asks for, I get this, 3 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 3 plus 2 plus 2. That's one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two. That probably sounds impossibly complicated, but if you hear it, well, as played by the woodwind and the strings, it does sound like a kind of crazy dance rhythm. Sounds quite nice in itself, but Ligeti doesn't just leave it at that. He has the violin play, first of all, very fast cross rhythms, tugging against that dance rhythm in the background. And eventually, he has the violin playing different mixtures of threes plus two. It does create the most extraordinary sense of tension. And it goes on getting even more complicated than that. But once you've got those basic dance patterns in your mind, it's maybe not as impenetrable than it sounds at first, because you start to feel how these ideas are pulling against each other and creating this extraordinary, exciting kind of tension. In fact, I know one friend of mine described it as a kind of mad delirium, or even an ecstasy or a panic. That side is very typical of Ligeti, and there's plenty more of it to come in this concerto. But also typical of Ligeti is that melancholic, desolate lyricism that we sampled at the beginning of the second movement. Remember the theme that was very much like a, a Hungarian folk tune. Here, there are more unusual tuning effects. The violin starts at the beginning with, again, very simple tuning down on the dark G string. But there are kind of little modal inflections in the scale. Sometimes you get one note sharpened, one note flattened, that give it that specially sort of Eastern European folky taste, a bit like the flavor of paprika in the music.
Basically, this whole second movement is a kind of fabulous, fantastical set of variations on that theme. First of all, the solo plays it more or less the same with an accompaniment on low flutes. Then horns join in. But the horns don't play the normal notes of the scale. They play their own natural harmonics. And it has a really unearthly quality against the modern conventional tuning of the violin. I should point out that the horns are asked to play incredibly high up in their register at the moment. Ligeti has a habit in this concerto of asking instruments to play where they're least comfortable. But that's absolutely the kind of effect he wants to create, that kind of clash that might remind you of the playing of, say, of a gypsy band, where the tuning isn't civilized, it isn't cultivated like you get in a Western ensemble, but has that kind of astringency that gives it a distinctive flavor. If that sounds unearthly, what follows sounds positively demented. It's the turn of the ocarinas to take up that folk melody in a faster rhythm with jagged chords from the soloist, more of that kind of hocketing effect between the winds and the violinist, which is mentioned in the title of the movement. But again, this is pretty strange. You can still hear maybe the contours of the outline of that folk-like tune in what the ocarinas are playing, but you must admit it's changed its character a bit. And then comes the climax, which we heard earlier on with the swanny whistles we heard at the beginning of the program, and then that very soulful, desolate ending where the violinist wraps it up very beautifully. It's quite a simple overall shape in a way. It is recognizable as a theme and a set of variations on that theme, all more or less based on the contours of that folk melody. Yet at the same time, there's something very perplexing and teasing about this movement. Does that one melody really hold that music together? Or is the disparity of ideas so wild that it's almost coming close to bursting the frame, tearing up the envelope? That's the kind of question I think Ligeti wants us to ask as we listen to this music. He's not a conceptualist. He isn't first and foremost concerned with making you think. He wants to write sounds that entertain, that bewitch, that beguile, and maybe excite and even challenge a little. But it is music that does ask you, is everything possibly, can it be all contained within one structure? Or are we dealing with strange things off the margin? Maybe Ligeti's vision, in a sense, as someone once said, is that the consistent vision isn't possible, that we have to accept the wild, confusing, even frightening diversity of the world on its own terms. Well, that's the kind of thing he makes me think of at this point. You may think something completely different, of course. Anyway, it's time we got back to the music. The third movement of this five-movement concerto is one of those filigree textures that Ligeti has created throughout his career and made so much his own. The solo violin plays a melodic line which begins with a slow descending figure. Those first few notes, duh, 
da 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 dum. This idea of a falling phrase is taken up by the strings in the orchestra, but they play it much, much faster in a little sort of downward scurrying figure. Let's hear it just first of all played by one of the violins. That same little figure is played over and over again by all the upper strings, but slightly out of step with one another, creating a kind of blurred effect, almost like fireworks dropping their trails in the sky. Above that, and some strange sustained notes on the lower strings and the high woodwind, the violin itself plays a line which has a kind of sensuous beauty of its own, as though something warmly human were trying to sing through this kind of weird, ghostly texture. There's something almost romantic about the violin line, which stands out against the real weirdness, the kind of disorienting weirdness of that accompaniment. Ligeti isn't afraid of invoking tradition, but he does make you wonder about it as he kind of reviews it in this way. That's very beautiful, but there's a sort of uneasy quality underneath it which builds as this third movement progresses, and it builds to a truly terrifying climax. You wouldn't believe that we were dealing with such a small orchestra, an orchestra of only 24 musicians at this climax. Ligeti marks this high point of this movement, precipito come una cataclisma, precipitous like a cataclysm, and that really is exactly how it sounds. No mistake about that, is there? Certainly it lives up to its instruction. What happens after this cataclysm? Well, there comes a profound sense of desolation, as there often does in Ligeti's music. The fourth movement is called Passacaglia. Now, this is a very old musical form of Passacaglia, which is based on the idea, a very simple idea, which repeats over and over again. If you think of the 12-bar bass in blues, the bass plays the same idea over and over again, while the rest of the ensemble develop the music on top of it and enrich it. This couldn't be much simpler, the theme that Ligeti bases this Passacaglia on. It's a more or less simple, rising, slow, chromatic scale. Only it's, as it rises, it's handed from one instrument to another, so that the rising continues, but at a different kind of phase as it changes color. Sounds like this.
And that simple chromatic scale, dee da da dum, goes on rising and rising and rising through this movement. Whatever else is happening, the backbone is incredibly simple. It's just that kind of rising scale. I don't know how many of you have ever seen one of those pictures by the artist Max Escher. You probably recognize them even if you don't know the name. He's the guy who loved to draw staircases that seem to go on spiraling endlessly upwards. They make your brain reel as soon as you look at them because what you see is just a staircase that kind of goes round in a circle and yet as you follow it round and round it seems to go higher and higher and higher until you just don't feel like looking at it anymore. And that is more or less what happens in this fourth movement of Ligeti's Violin Concerto. The spiral keeps on going higher and higher and gradually, as you'll hear, the other instruments in the orchestra start registering a kind of alarm. It gets more and more panicky in response to this until we get right to the top and the highest notes you can imagine. A kind of vertigo takes over and the whole thing culminates in a sort of semi-human shriek with the soloist and the xylophone. It's quite unmistakable. It's almost as though you kind of look down at this point and thought, no, 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 no more. This is just too high. That's certainly the effect Ligeti seems to want here. I think that's marked F-F-F-F-F in the score. <laughs> Fortisissississimo, I think. We get the message. Ligeti was one of those composers who was never afraid to admit, like Stravinsky, that a good composer is always perfectly happy to steal because um, Ligeti insisted that he actually stole that screaming violin from Shostakovich. And if any of you know Shostakovich's Fourth Symphony, it does begin with an extraordinarily similar sound. That's the beginning. Though as far as I know, Ligeti's the first composer to end a piece with it to that devastating effect that we've just heard here. But there is one more movement, a finale, which is marked appassionato, passionately, full of passion. And the beginning of it recalls those filmy string oscillations that we heard from the beginning of the concerto, a bit of a recapitulation going on here. Well, at the same time, there's a sort of poignant, lamenting, falling figure on the woodwind with jagged outbursts from the solo violin. That's pretty easy to follow. But then comes another example of Ligeti playing with time, the kind of thing he loves to do in his music. There's a folk-like melody, actually played on its own. It does sound remarkably like Balkan folk music. This is how it appears if we just hear the high clarinet, the E-flat clarinet. definitely sounds like folk music. Well, the violin, the solo violin, and his two shadows, the two differently tuned string instruments, also play a version of that, but they play it in shorter notes so that it sounds faster than the E-flat clarinet version.
And what happens is that Ligeti puts those together in canon so that the strings enter slightly later than the E-flat clarinet, all sorts of other things going on at the same time. And if you listen carefully, you can hear that canon going on between the clarinet and the strings at slightly different times, one faster than the other. for a while and then the brass and the percussion seem to say well that's enough of that indeed his very last gesture in this concerto is a kind of sardonic joke because he does something very very conventional in a way just what you'd expect from a kind of typical romantic concerto the tension builds up and at the height of the tension the soloist comes in and plays a long solo cadenza it's his turn in the spotlight to show just how amazingly he can cope with this astonishing tortured violin writing and we hear pyrotechnics fireworks from the violin on his own for a little while and then the orchestra comes in loudly you're expecting a kind of bum bum as a well emphatic concerto end but just as this is sort of building up at the very end you'll notice there's a kind of glissando a slide on the timpani and then the last thing you hear is just a sort of on the woodwind as the concerto just dies away it's as though Ligeti's had the last laugh again he's built you up to expect something really quite conventional a nice emphatic punk ending and suddenly he pulls the rug from under your feet which is something he always loved doing well certainly I hope you get the joke when we hear this concerto but at the same time I do think Ligeti has a very serious point here listening to this piece this morning it was extraordinary in the control box as the orchestra were rehearsing it how extreme our reactions to this music felt one moment we were all laughing and saying God, that's extraordinary and the next moment there was this real sense of something emotionally very powerful going on and my feeling is that Ligeti is like a kind of joker but a joker with a very serious message to tell he's someone who views our world with a mixture of fascination and alarm and perhaps art for him is a way of as Kipling famously put it in that poem of his if a way of keeping your head when all around are losing theirs or is he just a wonderfully crazy mad magician in sound? Well, in a way, that's up to you to decide as you hear the music. Before we come to the complete performance, though, has anybody anything they'd like to ask? Or has anybody any comments they'd like to make on what we've just heard? There's somebody over here. This is a question for the conductor. Now, and it's only due to the fact that we've had this introduction and explanation of the piece from Baroque times, as you say, it's the keyboard that's dictated the notation of notes. But if you include medieval concepts of music and ancient Greek harmonics, what does an orchestral score look like? Has he adapted it to using conventional notes and quarter tones and eighth tones? Or is it completely different types of notation he uses? The way how he notated the piece is very conventional. Ah. It's very conventional. Everything is, is written on the way which any other pieces are, are written. The result is not conventional. What makes it very difficult for the orchestra members uh, and the soloist is that sometimes the, the conductor has to beat something what has nothing to do with the melody itself, what they have to play. In the 1960s and 70s, when Ligeti was making his name, 
scores of new music looked like nothing else on earth, did they? They, would be, they could look like drawings of trees or computer programs. And sometimes orchestral members would have something put in front of them and the composer would just say, react to this. <laughs> and sometimes they did. With me. Problem. Yes, <laughs> but this is remarkable, actually, this score. It really looks like a conventional score. Ligeti, I think, had learned his craft over a very long time, and he learned in the end that it wasn't really necessary to go to these extraordinary extravagant lengths. Uh, uh, would you say so? Uh, uh, well, I, uh, I should tell you something about Ligeti. Mm. Ligeti has, a, has grooves which is, which is very Hungarian. So mm. this kind of grooves of uh, Franz Liszt, Oh, yes. Bartók and him, mm-hmm. together with George Kurtag or, mm-hmm. or Peter Atwes. Great experiment. It's, it's, a, it's a, from Liszt, there is a tradition, a Hungarian tradition, and I can hear it in, by each place. This sounds like Hungarian music to you, listening yes, to it. Yes, Very clearly. Mm. Thank you. Has anybody else anything they'd like to ask? Uh, gentleman over here. Um, I'd like to ask uh, a couple of questions uh, about those uh, two instruments written. Uh, are, are written in, in C? or are treated like transposing instruments? It all looks perfectly normal on the page. It's just that they're asked to tune it differently so that it sounds out of tune or differently tuned. You said you had another question. Yes, thank you. And um, before, we, we could hear the, um, a little fragment by the solo violinist. Yes, yes, that's the folk kind of melody, is, yes. Is that maybe from Musica Ricercata a self-quotation of Ligeti himself? Do you know if there are some more self-quotations? Or That's interesting. That hadn't occurred to me, but Ligeti is the kind of composer who likes putting quotations from his own music in sometimes. He's, he's a great one for riddles and codes sometimes. He likes to bury things in. So you may well have heard something that I haven't at that point. I, I don't know. The, the violin concerto, this will be my first time hearing mm. it, but I, I knew that tune. I, I knew what notes he was going to play before, so I have to hear it before in then, some sense. Then it sounds as if you've hit on something. Thank you very much. So I, I will try to find out what. Bravo. What is. <laughs> I mean, so, so um, don't you know if it's something concrete or the music of Bartok, for example, is very much connected to the Hungarian folk tunes, but he never used one to one, never. But you have the feeling that in the background, this is this is folk tune. Mm. Yes. This is the same with with the, with the third movement. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, somebody over there has a question they'd like to ask. Uh, this is kind of an argument with the conductor. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but I'm afraid that the second movement melody was in Musica Rishichata, almost note for note, just not strictly rhythmically the same. It's also in the Six Bagatelles for Wind Quintet, and it's also in the Horn Trio. Um, in the same way Ligeti uses it in the Valen Concerto, he also uses in the last movement the Lamento uh, melody, which is in the piano choose and the concerto for piano, and uh, also <laughs> the solo viol- solo viola sonata, and um, it's it's also very similar to the way that he treats um, the melody of Lontano, which is exactly the same. You are as- absolutely right. I yeah. did uh, my I meant something else. I meant that it's not you, not from somewhere from the folk tune or Hungarian tradition. This was my meaning. Oh, right. Of course, there are many melodies which, which he used from other pieces of himself. Right, okay. This, <laughs> misunderstanding, or I misunderstood the question before. So. Okay, Of Thank course, you. You, are, you are well prepared. <laughs> Very well prepared. Um, 
Has anybody else anything they'd like to ask or a bit of controversy they'd like to stir up or something? <laughs> yes, lady over here. I don't know anything about Ligeti at all, and I wonder if you could tell me anything about his life? Oh, well, born in Hungary um, and left, I think, after a pretty short experience of communism. Isn't that right? After the Hungarian uprising? Not long after the Hungarian uprising, he left and settled in the West. I don't think there are any great scandalous events associated with his name. He's one of those composers who's always been a kind of a musician's musician. But he reminds me of something that Frank Zappa once said. Frank Zappa was very fond of quoting Flaubert, which was, the line was, be calm and orderly in your everyday life that you may be wild and experimental in your music. And it often seems today, doesn't it, when you look at the world of pop celebrity, there are plenty of people who are living wild and extravagant lifestyles while writing unbelievably dull music. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly not a controversial statement. Ligeti is the reverse, and we should celebrate people like this, people who lead lives that seem very contained and very orderly and well-organized and yet have wild and wonderful musical imaginations. Right from his earliest experimental stuff, Nouvelle Aventure, these wonderful choral pieces that he did, which I'd recommend you to try and get hold of if you can, which are just the most astonishing creation of sound effects. And yet, what really fascinates me is I, I am not a great fan of modernism in itself. I'm not a modernist. But there are a handful of these great modernist figures who appeared in the 60s and 70s who it seems to me do still have something to say. And listening to this concerto today for me and getting to know it better really has been one of those experiences when I think, no, this, this man is basically just a musician, just a composer. He has an amazing, wonderful, unrestricted, unprejudiced attitude to experiment. He will throw in everything but the kitchen sink. But basically, it all ultimately sounds heard, as though what leads him in the end is his ear. It's the musical line. It's does it make emotional and expressive sense? Does it make architectural and classical sense? All those things that the great composers through Bach, through Brahms, through Beethoven, all were concerned about, he is too. And I think this is one of those works, particularly at the end of his life, where he seems perfectly happy to proclaim his being in a tradition while at the same time showing that he stands in a very modern relation to it. And I think that if you've been inspired by what you've heard and you feel like getting hold of a recording of this concerto and listening for yourself, you will find, as, as, as all of us have found, that the more you get to know this music, the more sense it makes. And the less it's necessary to think about it, that it's just music and it really does work on its own terms. Well, we really have that opportunity now because, as I said, the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra have been practicing very hard with soloist Ernst Kovacic to make this piece work. So let's now hear Ligeti's Violin Concerto, played by the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, conductor Salt Nodge, and our soloist Ernst Kovacic. <laughs> 